We've been walking through the book of Acts, and most recently we, we looked at uh, the creation of uh, a group of seven men. There was a problem in the church in Acts chapter 6, really the first big problem. Now, they'd already had a problem that was big, but it was limited to two people, and Ananias and Sapphira, and they're, they're lying to the church. And that was a, that was a big problem, but it was kind of confined to those two people. But in chapter 6 of Acts, there was a big issue because the two parts of the church, the church was all Jewish at that point, but there were kind of two, uh, two different varieties of Jews. There were the Greek-speaking Jews, known as Hellenistic Jews, and there was the Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews, and, and they kind of walked in different circles. They lived different lifestyles. Even though they were the same ethnicity, there was still a big difference between them, and, and there was a fuss that happened because it seemed like one group, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, their widows were not being tended to. And we saw how in the book of Acts, the apostles, they did not ignore this, but they listened and they, uh, they moved forward as a church as they designed a plan to make sure this kind of thing wouldn't happen again, to make sure that there would not be division in the church. And so uh, they appointed seven men. They told the congregation, choose for yourselves seven men full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And they chose these seven men. And the first two were Stephen who we looked at for three weeks, and we talked all about him. And the second one was Philip. And so we looked at these past three weeks, uh, Stephen, who is the first martyr in the history of the church. We talked about what he did, the story he told, and then how uh, he changed the church forever. And so now we come to chapter 8, and this is uh, beginning the story of Philip, but it also we're hearing a little bit more about a guy named Saul that we just heard a tad bit about last time. I'm going to ask if you would uh, please stand with me in honor and reverence of the reading of God's Word and follow along in your copy of God's Word or on the screen. I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. So at the end of this, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 is kind of wrapping up that stoning of Stephen. And we were told that Saul had uh, been holding the coats for those who were stoning him. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church, he went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria, and he told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds intently listened to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there came a great joy in that city. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of the good news concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. 
As a result, many men and women were baptized. And Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went. And he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had, not been for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking that God's gift can be bought. You have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you've said won't happen to me. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that, um, God, as it is sent forth, God, that it would, as your word promises, not return void, but would accomplish that purpose for which it is sent forth. Father, be with now the reading and proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What an interesting time in the life of the church. The early church had already experienced some persecution. They had experienced um, some resistance. They had been called in and warned and, and flogged and told not to preach in this name. They had been pressured and persecuted, but nothing had happened that was all that great. Now, we would think it was great. Uh, we would go to pieces if we experienced the pressure that they were experiencing. But for them, it was not all that bad until Stephen was martyred. And rather than Stephen's illegal stoning, because it certainly was an illegal execution, the Jews who were under Roman authority at that time, they had no power, no authority to, to kill someone on their own. And yet this mob execution of Stephen, rather than them saying, oh, what have we done here? How can we live with ourselves? We've killed an innocent man. Rather than that feeling coming out, instead, they were emboldened to persecute the Christians even more. That sorry sucker died, but he's not the only one that should die. They should all die, or at least they should suffer, and they should, they should be put in jail, and they should be thrown into chains. And so a young man named Saul, who actually never threw a stone at Stephen, but he was an accomplice. He was more than a bystander. The Bible tells us he was holding the cloaks, the coats of those who were stoning, and he was approving of everything that was being done. And after that, that image that was burned into his mind, rather than saying, this is wrong, I can't stand this, he said, this is right. Those Christians, they have perverted the Jewish religion, and they need to die. And so he began going from house to house, wherever he could. And the Bible interestingly says, persecuting both men and women. 
It's interesting because you see that even in the early life of the Christian church, both men and women were very active as leaders in the church. And so the Bible says that they spread. The apostles, the 12 themselves, they stayed in Jerusalem. But just about everybody else started expanding, and they moved to the, the larger area of Judea that was around Jerusalem. And some of them even moved into Samaria to the north. And one of those who happened to move out uh, to, to go a different direction was Philip. And we, we said last week that this Philip, uh, that he was, he was not the, uh, the apostle, he was not the twelve. There's one of the twelve named Philip, but this was not him. This was one of the seven that was chosen in Acts chapter 6. And he goes out and, and he goes to the area of Samaria. And he starts preaching, he starts teaching. And his preaching and teaching, they are accompanied not only with, is not only powerful words, but it's accompanied by miraculous signs. And always in the Bible, when signs are done, they're not just to show off. They're not a neat trick. They're not to make some Christian leader look cooler. They're always to attest to the power of God. They back up that message. Because, see, in this area where he was going to Samaria, there was a magician. Uh, There was not, not like we have today, you know, that you see most of, you know, illusionists. Now, this guy was involved with satanic power. And he was using that power he had received to do great signs and wonders for the people of Samaria. And so these Samaritans, who remember, they were, they were half Jews. Uh, they had been mixed in uh, in the Old Testament. When the Assyrians carried them off, they mixed in with them. And so the Jewish people kind of looked down on these Samaritans. And they, they still believed in Jehovah God, but they, they were different. They didn't associate with one another, and they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their Bible. And they didn't worship in Jerusalem. They had another center of worship. And so this man had told them, I am a great prophet, I am a great power, and he was doing these signs with satanic power. But Philip comes on the scene, and he begins preaching to them, good news, the good news of the gospel, that the Messiah, the long-awaited one, had come. And see, even the Samaritans, even though they didn't have the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and other, these late great prophets, even in the first five books of the Old Testament, that Messiah was prophesied was coming. So even the Samaritans, they knew there is a coming one. And they eagerly heard this message. And they saw the signs, and they believed, and they were flocking to the message of the gospel. And even this evil sorcerer, he himself, Simon the magician, he believes the message of God. And he believes and is baptized, and he's following Philip everywhere. And and we, we have to believe that somehow Simon says, here is a power greater than mine. This must be the true power of God. Well, the Jerusalem church gets wind of it. And this was something new and different. Yes, Jesus had spoken to the woman at the well in Samaria. But but for the most part, his mission had been to the Jews themselves. And so the church sent um, Peter and John, go out and check this out. And so they do. And they find the people who have believed But they have not yet received the Holy Spirit. And this is something interesting in the book of Acts. There are three places in the book of Acts where people have believed, 
but not yet received the Holy Spirit. Of course, the beginning is at Pentecost. And the Bible tells us later on in the, in the writings of Paul that by this day and age in which we live in, people receive the Holy Spirit the moment that they are born again, the moment that they uh, receive Jesus Christ by faith. But it was delayed for different reasons back then. And for, on this occasion, the Holy Spirit coming upon these believers was delayed until Peter and John got there so that they as apostolic witnesses could see that the Holy Spirit had come upon these people just like it had upon the Jews on the day of Pentecost. It was affirmation that this message of Jesus Christ is a message for everyone, not just for Jews in Jerusalem, but for everyone. And so they come and they, they lay hands and these believers receive the Holy Spirit. And Simon the magician perks up. He's like, wow. I mean, I was impressed by what Philip was doing already, and that made me believe in Jesus. But Simon was, uh, he, he was used to doing powerful things, so he appreciated what they did. He said, I want to know this too. I want to be able to lay my hands on people. And he went to, to Peter, and he said, hey, I'll pay you big bucks. I'll pay you lots of money if you'll just extend this power to me. He didn't get it, right? And Peter looks at him, and he said, may your money perish with you. You better pray to God that he has and hope he has forgiveness upon you because your heart's not right. You've got bitterness and jealousy in your heart. And so he says, Peter, you pray for me, please. You be the one that pray that these terrible things don't come upon me. And Luke, the author of the book of Acts, just kind of leaves us hanging right there. He doesn't tell us the rest of the story. He just stops. He just kind of goes on and he says, Peter and John, on the way back, they minister to other Samaritans, villages, preaching the gospel. And they go back and they tell the, the church in Jerusalem, report what's happened. This great thing that the gospel has come to Samaria. And so it's a, a fantastic story. But within this message... We learn about some things that really challenge our beliefs if we think about them. Non-believers, atheists, sometimes say that we believe in myths. Uh, we believe made-up stories. And we would say, no, we believe the absolute, uh, the truth, the word of God that has been given by God. He inspired it. And his miracles, the greatest miracle of all, in fact, being that wonderful cross that we uh, sang about, that Jesus died on that cross, and he went to the tomb, but he didn't stay there. He rose again. And so we would say these are not beliefs. These are absolute truths. But the interesting thing is that even as believers, sometimes we may believe in God, but we don't believe everything this word says. Sometimes we believe in myths ourselves, things that are not found in this book. And I see several, and I want to look at just four of them today Mythbusters in this passage. Myths that we believe that are proved to be wrong by the passage we read today. The first myth that Christians commonly believe is that persecution is the worst thing that could ever happen to us. Don't we think that? I mean, a lot of times, in fact, we look at our country, we say things are getting harsher and harsher on Christians, and, and our faith is being limited, and it looks like things are getting darker and worse, and we think this is the worst thing that could ever happen to us, is for us to be persecuted. 
And yet, as you look at the book of Acts, just the opposite happened. Jesus had commanded them, you're going to be my disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But where are they at in Acts chapter 8? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. They haven't gone out to the uttermost parts of the earth. It wasn't that they were intentionally disobeying, but they were just, hey, they probably figured in their minds, you know what, we'll completely evangelize Jerusalem. We'll keep preaching and teaching. And when everybody accepts the word, then we'll move on to those other mission fields. And God had to allow some persecution to come so that they would move out, so that the gospel would spread. Because I have a feeling that they would have sat there in Jerusalem enjoying good fellowship and good worship and good evangelism and all these things would have been really good right there in Jerusalem. But the message of God would not have spread the way it needed to spread had he not allowed this persecution to come in. And so as those saints fled the area of Jerusalem, the Bible doesn't make it out like, oh, this is an intentional mission trip. Later on, we'll see that, right? We'll see some intentional mission trip. But this wasn't like, we're going to go here and we're going to preach the gospel. It was more of a, as you go, as we walk to a new place in life, as we go through this new part, this new journey, we meet new people, we're going to share what's building up inside of us. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our own world today, all we have to do to see, is this, does this really still happen? I mean, this is 2,000 years ago. Is it still that same principle? Does it hold true? Look at Christianity under communist China. The door was closed. It was said, hey, you can't, you can't believe this. You can't believe in God. And, and even later on, they said, okay, there'll be some official uh, churches. Well, <laughs> don't know where that was. Maybe, maybe uh, Simon the Magician was trying to throw something on us. I don't know. Um, but you know what? As the church was oppressed and persecuted, the church multiplied. The more the Chinese government tried to stomp out, and they still, there's some official allowed Christianity, but the underground churches, those who say, we don't want to register with the government because we know what they'll do and we're afraid of what they'll do, the Chinese government still to this day is trying to stomp those believers and those churches out. And what has happened, though, in that, that country is that the gospel has mushroomed. The gospel has exploded. It has multiplied into new believers more than ever thought possible. And so the first myth that we often believe that the worst thing that could ever happen to us is to be persecuted. The reality is the worst thing that ever happens to most Christians is peace and prosperity. The very things that we long for and we all enjoy they lull us into this sense that we're at home in this world, that things are just the way they ought to be, and we forget that there's a lost and dying world around us who needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we forget that this world itself is not our home, but we have a home prepared for us by Jesus. Second myth that this, gospel, that this passage explodes is that good Christians are always happy. Now, I don't know if I've ever once heard a preacher preach that, but that is often the thing that is believed. I know that it's in some hymns we sing, hymns that are in every hymn book of every church. There's songs that talk about always being happy all the time. 
And there's people who believe that's how they have to be a good Christian, is that they have to pace on smile even when they don't feel happy. They think that being a good Christian means you're happy all the time. But God's Word never tells us that. It does tell us that we're to rejoice in all things because we know we can always rejoice in the Lord no matter what's going on. But that doesn't mean that we're happy all the time. When you see in this passage, in the very beginning, in verse 2 of chapter 8, it says, Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. That's two key words in that verse. Very important. Devout and great. If the Bible had just said there were some men that came and they buried Stephen, and they were really, boy, they were just shedding tears. They were really sorrowful. We just read that verse and we just said, oh, well, they didn't really have faith. They didn't know they were going to see him again one day in heaven. Somehow that must have not clicked, or otherwise they wouldn't have been mourning and carrying on like that. Or if it had left out the word great, we would minimize it. And we would say, oh, well, I'm sure they mourned, but it, it, you know, it wasn't that. You know, they cried a tear or two, but, but then they put it away. And they got over it, and they got on with their lives. But that's not what the Bible says. These were devout men who buried Stephen with great mourning. The reality of our lives in Jesus Christ is that we do have a hope that helps us when we go through all things, and especially when we lose someone to the hereafter. If they're in Christ and we're in Christ, we have that great hope of seeing them again one day. But that does not mean that we do not experience loss. The reality is that true Christians are not happy all the time. If you're happy all the time, you have an emotional disorder. You really do. Honestly. I, I saw this, boy, I hate to even bring this up, but you know that, that whole John Bonet, Ramsey, that, that murder case? And I saw this, they interviewed uh, the, the, the brother and, of course, now the theory is it wasn't the parents, it was actually him. Who knows? But this guy was sitting there talking to, to Dr. Phil. And he's sitting there talking about his sister's murder. And he has this grin on his face, this odd grin on his face the whole time. And I'm sitting there thinking, but it's a good thing I'm not on the jury if you go on trial. Because I'm sitting here seeing you're grinning about this. Either he's guilty or he's got some serious problems. Because... We don't grin and smile about bad things happening in our life. What the Bible does say is we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. You and I grieve, and we can grieve greatly when we lose ones we love or when we lose other things in life. It might be health or relationships or whatever. But our grief is always tempered by that hope. Grief might be temporary, but that hope stays within us as believers. A third um, myth that is busted by this passage, and I've heard it often said, he's beyond hope. There's no redemption for him. She'll never come to know the Lord, not as far off as she is. We often look at people that way and we say, what in the world? What in the world? <laughs> How in the world are they going to, uh, to ever get to God? And we, we really do sometimes think people are beyond hope. But here we're talking about a young man named Saul. And we get to chapter 9. 
He's going to have a change of name and, more importantly, a change of life. And here also we look at a guy named Simon who was a sorcerer, for goodness sake. He was as far in the other team as you could be. And yet the Bible says he believed. Did he have some issues? Yeah. <laughs> and we'll talk about that. But the passage reminds us that no one is beyond redemption. No one is beyond hope. You and I have to be able to look at every person. And we may look at them and we may say, wow, without even trying to judge, it appears to me that they're far from God. But you know what? We should always say there's hope for them. They can come if they're on the, the worst side of the other team. And that's exactly what Paul says later on in one of his writings. He says, I, God came to save sinners of whom I am the chief. He said, let me have a, a bragging right, but it's actually an insult right. I'm going to cut myself down. I'm going to say I'm the number one sinner there ever was because I tried to destroy the church. And yet by God's grace, he saved me. And you and I always need to keep that in our hearts, that no one is beyond redemption. Fourth and finally, the fourth myth so many people believe is that real Christians, here with the quotes, <laughs> real Christians don't commit big sins. Real Christians don't commit big sins. Again, you don't really most of the time hear this preached, but I actually have. I've heard people say, well, you look at their life and what they did, they couldn't have been a real Christian. And I often hear Christian people saying that kind of thing. Oh, they ain't no kind of Christian because they did fill in the blank. And whatever your idea of what a real Christian would never, ever do, you can fill in that blank. And, and you know what? We sl slip into that kind of thinking. All of us do sometime because we don't want to imagine that that person with what they did could possibly be in heaven with us one day. And we sure don't want to imagine that our sins could be as bad as fill in the blank that was done to us or to someone we love. And so many times we think they can't be a real Christian if they did that. Now, am I, am I saying that there aren't fakes out there? No, I'm not saying that. The Bible tell, teaches us that. And one day God will take care of that. He'll separate the wheat from the chaff, the Bible says. The true believers from the unbelievers who are just faking it. Those kind of people are out there. But the reality is that there's a lot of people who's re who've really believed. And yet they're really messed up at this point in their life. Simon was one of those. I, I find it very interesting. I, I read several commentaries each week before I prepare messages. And... Uh, it's funny, you'll see some of them trying really hard to somehow say that this guy wasn't a real, true Christian. But the problem is, the Bible says he was. The Bible says he believed. He was baptized. He followed. He didn't pretend to believe. He really believed. He really trusted in the message of the gospel. But guess what? Now, here's a shocker. Simon was not yet perfect. Simon had some issues in his life still that he needed to deal with. He came and he was actually a real true Christian, and yet he was bitter, and yet he had a lack of forgiveness. 
And this was bothering him. He had not turned over this area to the Lord. And so when he saw what was going on, he saw this power, he got jealous. He started to think, hey, back in the old days, you know, everybody used to look at me that way with awe and wonder. And they were all impressed by me. You know, now that I'm a Christian, I could find a Christian way of doing that. If I can pay this guy some money and and he can give me this power, then I can be a good Christian and, and I can give people the Holy Spirit. And how many of us have some point in our lives said, you know, back in the old days, (laughs) I wasn't living so good, but that was kind of fun. You ever heard people tell these, uh, give these testimonies, you know, the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll testimony, and they're like, they're acting like, well, I did this, and I did this, and then I became a Christian. And, you know, it kind of sounds like, well, they had more fun back then, the way they're making it out. And, you know, the reality is that the devil will tempt us, and he will try to say, There's more fun that way. And the Bible does tell us, oh, sin has pleasure for a season, right? But there's always the penalty to pay. There's always the consequences of it. Real, true Christians mess up and can mess up badly. Why does this make a difference? If we see someone who's not living as Christ called us to live... Maybe they're not really saved. But perhaps our first approach, rather than saying, you lost person, you heathen who doesn't know Jesus, maybe we should pray for them, encourage them, and try to help them back on the right road. No, we don't assume that anybody is a Christian. But we need to make the reality that all of us fall, all of us fail, all of us sin, even as believers. These characters that we read about, Saul, Simon Peter, John, Philip, Simon, the magician, they're all very real people. They had failings, just as you and I will have failings. But it's good to know that God has grace and mercy, not just to save us from our sin before we know, but he keeps on forgiving and loving us even as believers. So I hope this morning that these stories have helped you to realize that these myths out there, they're not in the Bible. And you and I need to base our beliefs on what God says rather than what everyone else around us does. Join me in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and grace upon us. God, you are so good to us. And Lord, if any of us, if our secret and private moments were revealed, and especially if the thoughts of our hearts were revealed, Father, we'd all be shocked until we realized that everybody else's would be just as bad. We've all failed you. God, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We pray that you would help us to show grace, to show mercy, to live out that gospel that you've called us to preach. Bless our time of invitation now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.